The following program is sponsored by Evangelical Life Ministries. Welcome to Engaging Truth, the manifestation of God's Word in the lives of people around us. Join us each week as we explore the impact of His message of spiritual renewal, from the lesson of forgiveness forged in the crucible of divorce, to the message of salvation learned by an executioner from a condemned killer, to the gift of freedom found in the rescue of victims of human trafficking. This is God's Truth in Action. And welcome to another edition of Engaging Truth. I'm your host, Pastor John Kane. Today with us on the program, we have Dr. Paul Grimm. He is the professor of pastoral ministry and mission, the dean of spiritual formation, and the dean of the chapel at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Many of our listeners might remember him because prior to his position at Fort Wayne, he was the project director for the Lutheran Service book that occupies many of our worship centers and sanctuaries across the globe. Before that, he was also a parish pastor serving at St. Paul's Lutheran in West Dallas, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. Well, you know, with your background, uh, you've done things at, uh, you know, the synodical level, you've done things at the parish level, and now you're doing things with uh, education. And identifying places where where people can get information for Christian living is an important aspect of our of our careers and today you'd like to talk to us about a particular book that you've found that uh, that appears to be quite helpful right yeah it, the story begins 3 years ago i was browsing through our library i found a review from 1976 of a book that had just been published called bright valley of love and the reviewer spoke just glowingly of it, saying it moved him so deeply. He was a previously a parish pastor and then was a university professor. So I snooped around and found that we had it in our library, took it with me that weekend. My wife and I were heading out of town for, a, I was preaching for an anniversary of a congregation. And while she was driving, I started reading and about halfway through the first chapter, I said, I think I'm going to start over and read it to you because I think this is going to be a good book. Uh, it's a story of a young boy uh, named Gunther who was born in Germany right at the beginning of World War I, was totally um, ignored and neglected in those early years. Severely, he became severely handicapped because of a case of rickets, eventually ends up with his grandmother who, she takes care of him, but she calls him nothing but a nothing. He, he, was, he had no human value in her eyes because he couldn't do anything. And after a few years, as World War I comes to an end, his father comes back from the war, they can't take care of him. So they take him off to a an institution that was run by Christians. It was called Bethel. It's near Bielefeld, Germany. And, and there, this is where the story just takes this amazing turn, where immediately you get this sense, he's worth something. And, and you just can't help but rejoice in, in that as you hear this story. And, and the amazing way in which the pastors, the deaconesses, the deacons would care for these children. They had hundreds and hundreds of them, if not, I think it was maybe a couple thousand that were residents of this institution in various buildings. It's almost like a whole little village. And, and the whole story just progresses along the way with, with an amazing story. It takes you all the way up to World War II where you know, many of these residents, were, their lives were threatened because the Nazi regime found them undesirables. They were wasting human resources. And so they were beginning a campaign to euthanize them. And the director of this, this institution kind of does a face-off with, with some of those Nazi leaders and is able to convince them not to take 
the residents at least of, of his institution and euthanize them. And so the, the whole story speaks just so powerfully of, of God's love for mankind and the value of every human life. Uh, it, it's simply a, a book that you can't ignore. And what also intrigued me right away, and which actually led me eventually to, to be able to negotiate the ability to reprint the book, was the, the fact that uh, there's there something sprinkled throughout this book, and that's Christian hymns. Uh, most, I mean, they're all Lutheran hymns, actually, because this was a Lutheran institution. And, and since I teach a course on hymnody for our future pastors and deaconesses, it seemed that I mean, this was just a great way to tell or to demonstrate the value of hymnody in the life of the Christian, uh, the ordinary life of Christians, but in a way that really brings quite, a, quite the hope and inspiration. Well, with traditional hymnody, uh, often as opposed to more of the modern variety of Christian songs, but uh, with traditional hymnody, uh, it is either direct quotes out of scripture or uh, very lengthy, educational, inspiring uh, uh, sort of lyrics that can have a very profound effect. Indeed. And, and what's, what's quite amazing about it is because they sang these hymns so often and so regularly, even these residents who in many cases, uh, you know, they, they had mental retardation, they knew the hymns though. They could respond with phrases from a hymn. And in fact, one of Gunther's first experiences is this little blind boy who's going to be in the same room with him and, and he can't see a thing, but he quotes hymns to Gunther and, and, and Gunther begins to kind of soak it in and, and soon enough comes to realize that Though his hands will never be able to do any kind of manual labor, he can sing hymns, and, and he actually will become kind of the messenger for the, the camp director, and every day singing a hymn to start his day off uh, and, and to give him encouragement. And eventually, he even starts writing poetry. Uh, he's given an old typewriter, and with his uh, basically one finger in each hand, because they, they're all kind of you know jumbled together, he's able to peck out um, his poems on, on his, his old typewriter. So here was this young man, Gunther, who I believe could not speak a word uh, before the age of six. And in very short order, he would be singing hymns such as A Mighty Fortress uh, in front of some of the Nazi officials that came that questioned whether he had any value or not. Um, it's a very powerful story. And, and from what I understand, this, this uh, Bethel place is still in operation in it, Bielefeld. It is. It's, it's grown into a massive operation throughout Germany now. I'm serving hundreds of thousands of people a year. It, it's lost some of its Christian moorings in terms of the, the deep spirituality that was a part of it. Uh, but, but there still are apparently some deacons, some older gentlemen who still care for some of the residents at least. Well, let's switch gears a little bit from War II to uh, today. So um, when, we, when we look at things from long ago history, we can point fingers at the, uh, the Nationalist Socialist Party of Germany, the Nazis. Um, and uh, it, are there any lessons we can learn for looking at today? Yeah, well, I, I, I do think so. And in fact, the author, I mean, her name is Edna Hong. She, she met this young man in the early 70s, and I think that's when she did her interviews with him. Uh, it was through a series of, of coincidences that she was able to come across this story. And you know, she, she has to construct much of the dialogue in the story. I mean, he, it's hard to know exactly how much information he gave her. He, was, he didn't speak, you're right, until he comes to Bethel. And then very quickly they discover, you know, he actually has quite a bright mind. 
Um, and, and it's only though after the, the, the director of the Institute looks up at him and, and picks him up and looks directly in his eyes. And, and it's described as, you know, he's like reaching deep into his soul when he looks into his eyes. And, and that's when Gunther will say, my name is Gunther. And kind of, I think, surprised the whole lot of them. Uh, but, but, you know, in our current worldview, um, I mean, the value of human life is, is so often shaped by utilitarianism. You know, if you can do something, if you can contribute in some way, you know, maybe your life has value. But if you can't, well, and, and, and we see that struggle with, with, with the whole abortion issue, of course, as, you know, as it continues to, to rage across the country. But, you know, the, the whole movement toward euthanasia, um, the treatment of the elderly at times, you know, they often are seen as not having any value anymore, or anything to contribute. So what's the good of them? Well, this book reminds us that everyone truly does have value in God's eyes. And, and that just comes through again and again in the story as, as these pastors and the deaconesses and, and the other servants there just, you know, time and again, just in very simple ways, they will affirm that, that um, wondrous creation that God has, has made for all of us and, and of which he's made us in, in particular. And I mean, the story is, is it, there's, there's very tender moments. There's funny moments as he's growing up. You learn that he grew up just like any other boy handicapped for sure but he he still participated in every possible way with with the um the other boys he's growing up with there's there's a significant moment of death early on in his stay there and and that profoundly influences him uh and the death of a dear his kind of his first friend um who was very much weakened by epilepsy and, and other illnesses that he had and he dies on christmas eve and, and, you know, it, Gunter's sad, but also he's had a few weeks during Advent to, to come to understand, you know, that death is not the last word. It's not the end. And that there's hope and eternal life. And in fact, it's Willie who first encourages them, you know, to see, he sings to him the song, Jerusalem, my happy home. He says, you know, don't be afraid of death. It's our happy home. And, um, and at the funeral a few days after Christmas, when, you know, Gunter realizes uh, the, 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 the power of humanity and, and its ability to help shape our lives and to understand how God works um, within our lives in these difficult times. And, and, and the author, the way she puts it after he hears them sing um, Jesus' priceless treasure for the funeral, uh, it says, oh, the words, the words, you know, I may not be able to use my hands, but I can sing. I can sing the words. And, and that really becomes kind of his life's goal. Well, Paul, coming off of the history, as I said, you wrote your own book then, uh, Has American Christianity Failed? So how do we approach this? Well, you know, I think we pray, obviously. Um, we pray that God would, in his grace and mercy, you know, allow his word to be spread far and wide so that the spirit can do his work of, of softening hardened hearts, which you know, are quite sadly, you know, far distant from him. Um, you know, even for Christians, though, who sometimes maybe don't quite understand the significance of, of how Satan, you know, is really all around and, and doing such anything he can to, to, to pull us from Christ and to, to thwart, you know, the, the spread of the gospel. I, I think we have to be reminded again and again of that value of life. I, mean, I can remember back to a time as a pastor when I would go through nursing homes. Um, and recently visiting a friend in a nursing home, thinking the same thing. You walk by rooms and you see people who sit there all day. You've heard other people say too, I just hope I'm never in that situation. But it's God's will that doesn't lessen your value in his eyes at all. And even though you may not be able to get out there and do things, so to speak, that doesn't mean that you are no longer worthwhile or worth anything. I mean, one still can pray. 
One can give encouragement to fellow residents. I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, and, and so for us to be kind of reminded of that and, and to help other people remember and understand that and see that. And especially, you know, since we had the, you know, the Roe versus Wade decision coming back earlier this, um, the, 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 the um, undoing of Roe versus Wade this summer, I, I think, you know, Christians are, are kind of, I think, maybe a little surprised by the, the, the vehemence of the opposition uh, that has just been ongoing ever since. And it's tempting to kind of just throw, you know, invective, you know, hurl invective against the other side to say, oh, you know, you don't understand. This is, you know, God's creation. How can you, you know, devalue life like this? We have to proclaim that truth. But a book like this actually does it some ways better because it almost comes at it from kind of a rear guard attack, so to speak. You tell this amazingly beautiful story uh, about this boy and the love that's shown to him in so many ways by these, these wonderful servants that were you know, taking care of all these residents. And how can you not by the end of the story, but say, well, of course his life is worth value. Any life is worth value. Uh, and, and, and maybe that is one of the ways we have to do the, the task that's set before us of, of proclaiming you know, the God, the creator and redeemer as the one who, who has given meaning to our lives and help people to realize that, that they also you know, need to come to that understanding. So would you say that American Christianity has failed or have we just not kept up with changes in society or we've missed opportunities or what would you say about us? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> you're asking a big question there. I, I think that I don't know if we failed, but maybe the eye has been taken off the ball sometimes. Uh, we, we, there's the temptation always to trust in princes, uh, you know, in the rulers, which uh, there's that one hymn, trust not in rulers, they are but mortal. <laughs> right. they, they soon decay. And, and, and that's, that's so true. I mean, I, I think maybe the temptation sometimes, especially, you know, with American Christianity often kind of blurring the distinction between church and state, is we come to almost put some trust in the state to help carry out our, our, you know, our, our hopes of, of, of a, of a God-fearing society. Uh, when ultimately that's not our calling. Our calling really is to proclaim the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we proclaim that far and wide, um, no matter where we are, whatever our situation, we, we continue to proclaim that it has, I mean, there, there's fall, or ramifications from that proclamation because indeed, when you tell that story, then, you know, hearts are changed. Um, well, the law, of course, first you know, convicts the sinner, but that good news of Christ's you know, sacrifice for all of our sins brings comfort and hope. And one hopes then that that translates, and, and this is where the old Adam can still get in the way, but, but by God's grace, we continue to let the fruits of faith show forth as, as, we, as we defend our neighbors, we speak well of those who, and, and speak for those who can't speak for themselves and, and continually you know, give that encouragement um, uh, to, to our Christian brothers and sisters, but then to speak the good word to the whole world so that others will come to the knowledge of the truth. So how do we define American Christianity? <laughs> I'm not expert in that one. You should have my, my boss, Dr. Rast, <laughs> talk about that. He's the historian of American Lutheranism and American Christianity in general. I, I, you know, I, I, I do think that the, the evangelical movement in this country attempts to, to blend, you know, the, the state into the church's work um, and, and kind of fuse the two together. And, and, and Lutherans have always tried to be careful in their understanding of the two kingdoms and the importance of, of remembering that um, 
and that that ultimately being our weapon is the word of God. And and in wielding that sword is 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 what he's given the church to do. Uh, indeed, given it to Christians though who live in the world, and so we we still work within you know the realms that in which God has placed us, and that includes in the political realm. Uh, it's not that we just eschew all that and, and run away the other way and ignore it, but at the same time to make sure that as we carry out our task as the church, that we we are faithful in in being um, those who will deliver Christ and him crucified. Well, let's describe some of the life in in this facility. In a way, it was a protected uh, environment uh, for this uh, young man, Gunther. Uh, What about the Christian character of uh, pastors and their uh, co-workers, the deacons and deaconesses? I, it, there's there's great moments of, of where laughter's bound to come, or at least a chuckle when you're reading. For example, there's one the first pastor, this grandmother and father meet when they're taking this little boy to the place to dump him, basically is what they're going to do. Uh, they, they meet this pastor, he wonders where they're going, and they tell him they've been told to go to Patmos House. That was the house for the really younger ones and the ones who had significant disabilities. And he says, well, I'm going that way, follow me. And he starts, he has a trumpet in his hand, and he starts blowing the tune, oh, come little children, oh, come one and all. And, you know, the grandmother thinks he's loony. That's, that's the way she's describing it in her mind. She's describing it as being loony. And she's already met these two children that seem to be loony to her. Um, and, and she's just increasingly frustrated by just the strangeness. But he describes how Gunther in this father's arm starts to lean toward the music. It's like, you know, he's hearing something he's never heard before. He's been stuffed in the back room of a little apartment for six years uh, with no, never meeting anybody, never meeting anyone, just his grandmother. And so suddenly it's like a whole world's opening to him. And, and she way she even describes the author when, when, when his grandmother and father leave, he, there's a sense of, oh no, I'm being left. But he's so taken in by, by the love that's already been demonstrated, demonstrated to him that it's not too hard to let go because he knows that he is in a place now where they're going to treat him as, as a child of God should be treated. As the as the first person who inter- interviews them at the first at the, like reception desk, he says, "So, do you talk to Gunter?" Because they told him he doesn't talk. He says, "Well, do you talk to him?" And she said, "Why? What's there to say?" And his his the beautiful response: "The, the less they can say, the more we have to say to them." Again, just you know, we speak. Does God speaks to us? You know, we have nothing to say to God unless He's first spoken to us. And and so this comes through so so wonderfully in the story. Uh, he comes on a Friday apparently, and so it's on his third day, and that's how she describes it, on his third day, it's like Jesus' third day. It's on third day is Sunday, and he experiences his first Sunday as all these people are gathered, and actually they're having church outdoors because it's a, a summer day, and so they can do it outdoors. And she, I mean, the way she describes, they're, they're coming from every direction. It's not, it feels like you're in the book of Revelation, and they're streaming into the holy city, you know, they're just the, the, the great company of heaven. And then she describes how his life kind of finally gets centered. It's like the planet that's been just kind of waywardly drifting through space suddenly comes into orbit around the sun, namely around Christ. And so, you know, even, even she even finds a way to, to squeeze the, you know, a, a way Christians understand our keeping of time as, as, you know, Sunday being central. And so for these children, as Sunday comes, it's Sunday, it's Sunday, they say. I mean, this is like the best day of the week for them, which... Sometimes we probably don't quite think of it that way when we have the alarm clock go off on Sunday morning. Um, and, to, and to realize this really is our day. It's our Lord's day. And, and so even that is, is a marvelous description. I mean, these pastors and deaconesses, they never complain in the story. 
Now, I'm sure they struggled. They had a lot of troubles with many of these residents. And they especially had epileptics there because in those days, you basically institutionalized anyone with epilepsy. Families didn't want to deal with these, these seizures. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of epileptic seizures every day in this community among these 2,000 residents. And so it had to have been wearying for, for, those, for those caregivers. But you know, at least probably from Gunter's perspective and the other residents, they didn't see that in these, in these um, caregivers. They saw just a willingness to serve. And, and that service just went on day after day. But as I said, there's, there's lots of fun moments too as the children are playing. They're taken to a, a family farm nearby um, one day for an afternoon, for a whole day outing. And just describing the great time they have um, with this, this wonderful Christian couple who's happy to bring them in and they fed them lots of wonderful food and treated them to, you know, special treats as they were leaving. Um, and, you know, this is all post-World War II, one, which in Germany was terrible times. I mean, the economy was utterly shattered after that first world war. And, um, and yet you don't get any sense of, of a sense of deprivation among Gunther and the other residents as, as they're cared for as best they can be. So when we look at, um, uh, people reacting to Christians if if their own faith is not strong, understanding the motivation, the faith, and uh, the sense of identity, the sense of purpose uh, strikes people, as you said, loony, perhaps, um, and trying to, to recognize the fact that uh, uh, our way is not the way of the world. Right. Uh, no, that's, and, that's, that's very true. And I, I think that, and, and so, we don't realize we are on show in some ways. I mean, as Christians, people will look at us and, and sure they'll find us strange sometimes for us, but also one hopes they simply find us to be hopeful and to recognize us. We live in a sinful world. We are plagued with troubles in our lives too, but yet we don't grieve as those without hope when someone dies. We don't, you know, go around, you know, all grieving, you know, when just life deals us difficult turns either, but it's one that we, we, we struggle for sure, but we also live under the grace of God. And, and, and the more we can remember that, that, that trust in God is, is renewed through our continued hearing of his word and receiving the sacrament, I, that, that that will show forth in our lives in a way that, that others will take note of. And, and they may not, it may, it may be nothing more than just kind of a, an envy in some ways. How can you be like that? How can you feel that way when you're having such struggles or whatever else? But one simply continues to, even just by our actions, to demonstrate the confidence we have in, in our Lord and his provision. And at the same time, then, you know, giving that good word that in, that could be also for them. Uh, it, it can be for them if, if they also, you know, come to, to that word of Christ and, and are glad to hear it. Well, we've been talking with uh, uh, Paul Grimm from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Paul, this that you've talked about, Bright Valley of Love, where can we find a copy of it? Well, there's one in my hand. <laughs> but yeah, this book was reprinted by the seminary last December. Uh, you can get it from our bookstore. You just go to ctsfw.edu and find the bookstore. There you can find it. Uh, but it's also available on Amazon, and not only in paperback, but also in a Kindle version, and as well in an audio version, which we, um, we had some students here who did the recording of, of all the hymns that are sung in the book. There's probably about 
20 or so hymns, not full hymns, usually a stanza or two or three. We had various men and women sing these. And also we even have a trumpeter that plays the trumpet tunes that, that this pastor will occasionally play during the course of the story. Uh, and so it, it really kind of brings it to, to real life when you can listen to it and, and you can hear you know, the music actually sung I mean, as it would normally be done, of course. Well, I'd like to point out to our listeners that uh, God has valued your life so much that he sent his son to be our savior and to give you life eternal with him. Uh, Paul, we're uh, glad that you've been with us today and pointing us to this uh, message of hope that's found in this book. I'd also like to uh, invite our listeners to check out our program's website, elmhouston.org. There you can find out more about us and you can find some podcasts of past shows and ways to contact us. We hope that you will check out that area and you'll support what you listen to on this station. Once again, Paul, we thank you for bringing this message of God's hope to us and we invite our listeners to join us again real soon for another edition of Engaging Truth. Thank you for listening to this broadcast of Engaging Truth. Be sure to join us each week at this time. To help support our ministry, contact Evangelical Life Ministries, Post Office Box 568, Cypress, Texas, 77410, or visit our website at elmhouston.org, or find us on Facebook at Evangelical Life Ministries. Thank you.